Hey there, it's Alex. Just a really quick announcement before we get started here. We were totally booked out for our Cost of Glory Rome retreat this summer, 2024, June 30th through July 7th. But we've managed to make some adjustments and we've found room for another one or two slots. So if you're interested in visiting the great sites of Rome, discussing the merits of Rome's greatest men with me, and also improving as a speaker with the insights of ancient rhetoric and a whole lot of live practice and discussion, check out the retreat website at costofglory.com retreat. Hope to see you in Rome. Okay, now for the episode. Hello and welcome to the Cost of Glory. This is your host, Alex Petkus. Our mission on the Cost of Glory is to retell the lives of the great Greek and Roman heroes following the lead of Plutarch. But it's not just that, is it? We're also on a mission, you and I, to bring heroes back into the present day and to bring heroism back and to assimilate these lessons into our lives. So I'm starting a series of interviews to help myself and you go deeper into some of the ideas and the characters that we encounter to apply, to question, challenge, reflect, and just sharpen ourselves and our thoughts. So I think of them as deep dives, something to chew on while we're working on getting the next biography out. Pompey's coming soon. And our first guest that I've brought on is a longstanding friend of mine, a fellow classicist and podcaster, Spencer Claven from the Young Heretics podcast. Spencer has thought a lot about how heroes and books in general and art can impact your life for the better. So I thought he'd be a great guest to kick off this deep dive interview series. Spencer, by the way, is the author of a new book, How to Save the West. He's also an editor at Claremont Review of Books and at The American Mind, where I have published. In this interview, we talk about heroes. We talk about how modern theories of art often weaken us and end up making us waste our time. We talk a lot about the Greek hero Achilles, who was so important to Alexander and to Eumenes and to so many others. And we open with a conversation, though, about this idea of art for art's sake, which I think is deceptively interesting, actually. It's, it's a concept that I think is interesting and it's super relevant for deciding how you consume content and which content to consume something that Spencer has thought a lot about. And we also, further on the conversation, we talk about role models that have affected us, reading fiction in order to sharpen ourselves and to become better at what we do. Uh, We talk about some of Spencer's book recommendations for busy dads and more. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Spencer Clavin. Spencer Clavin, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Yes. Uh, Spencer is the host of the Young Heretics podcast. He is a fellow classicist. I love your show, Young Heretics. Spencer, it's, it's always very thoughtful and you bring in excellent examples and you're, you're dealing with great texts. A lot of what we are doing on The Cost of Glory is, is kindred in spirit. I thought that these conversations could be a, a way for us to get deeper into some of the issues and the ideas and the characters that come up. So you have a ton to contribute to that conversation. Why don't we start, though, with the fact that you and I are both classicists by training. And this is and for our sins. For yeah. our sins, yes. And this is a word that is not necessarily on, on the front of everybody's mind. How do you explain to people what that means, that to be a classicist? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for that extremely kind introduction. I think we've been fans of each other's work for a while and friends as well. It's great to be doing this more formally. Um, <laughs> sometimes when I tell people I'm a classicist, they'll say things like, oh, I really love Jane Austen or like, so here's a great book that I like, which is always very sweet and generous. And I'm always happy, of course, to talk about any classic book. That's why my podcast works the way it does. But it's a little bit like when I wrote my book, How to Save the West, and I told somebody the title and she said, oh, that's awesome. I love John Wayne movies. It's like, not that not that kind of West, although I too love John Wayne movies. Um, so classics, as you know, and probably a lot of your audience knows, is the study of ancient Greece and 
Rome recently. In recent years, it's somewhat kind of ventured out a little further afield. Some classicists have started, you know, kind of encroaching on the territory of Assyriologists and talking about the ancient Near East and so forth. But, you know, really classics core is you learn Latin, you learn Greek, and you read books that are written from antiquity in those languages. And it's not much more complicated or specific than that. So that's a pretty huge domain. I like to think of it kind of as a playground. One of my favorite professors in grad school referred to it as a climbing wall. It's like if you get your hooks in one part of a classical education or one part of the discipline of classics, you can climb your way to almost anything else. If you know about you know, ancient phonology or, you know, ancient uh, semantics, then it's one step over to kind of ontology. And then maybe you're into the philosophical region. And maybe from Plato, you can get onto literature. You know, there's just a ton. One of my favorite things about the discipline is there's an enormous range of topics that it covers, things that in the modern day would be considered kind of separate issues were really not for the ancients. And maybe that's a way of answering the question of what drew me to it. You know, I, from a very, very young age, I was really lucky to be uh, surrounded by books. You know, I just grew up in this house filled with bookshelves. And I had to, like, grow up and go out into the world before I realized that that was weird, that not everybody got to pull down whatever they wanted off the shelf. And not everybody particularly wanted to. A lot of people thought of, you know, old books as kind of forbidding or boring or whatever. And for me, it was just always clear from the jump that being surrounded by books meant being surrounded by friends. It meant that these minds from hundreds, maybe thousands of years ago could be right there face to face with you and they could be sharing some of the most profound thoughts that really have ever crossed anybody's mind about how to be good at being human, how to find your place in the universe, how to seek an upstanding life. Um, so why wouldn't you kind of make full use of that resource, that treasure house, if, if you can? And there's always been a quality in the greatest works of literature for me that I've described as richness, like where you just feel like you open a book and you just feel like you're digging your fingers into kind of rich soil that can grow a lot of stuff. Um, and, and classics, the sort of great texts of Greece and Rome, were where I found that maybe the most, with the possible exception of, of the Bible later on as I got older. Um, so it was responding to that and, and kind of following the tug of, of that sensation that ended me up getting into the, the linguistics and the, the language stuff. Um, but I just loved that here were these people that were urgently wrestling with questions, major kind of core questions in every possible field. You know, I just reread the Iliad, which is our oldest Greek poem, and the sense that I always have when I read that text is that, like, any topic, any dimension of human life, any aspect of just the experience of being alive, you can find some passage somewhere in that poem that, like, lays it out in its most kind of raw, bare-bones, core form. And everything else that you'll experience and think about is kind of going to spiral off from there. So I've just loved that. It's always been kind of the, the central joy of my heart, and it probably will be for my whole life, even though obviously my path through academia has been a sort of unconventional one, and I'm sure many other uh, in this weird digital age, I'm sure I'll end up doing all sorts of other weird stuff too. But at the heart of it is that sense, that that richness, that communion with the past. Beautifully put. And I, I love that image of the climbing wall where mm. you can go up, but you can also go over. And, and maybe the more you climb around on it, the easier it is to get from A to B and B to A and Z to Q. Uh, that's yeah. definitely been my experience, uh, you know, building a kind of gradual facility with these ancient books um, kind of gives you a facility with other ancient books that are equally different from us, but maybe you get you get used to the, the the difficulty somehow. Yeah, one of the things that has surprised me actually is that it's not limited just to your field of antiquity. That is, you can move forward in time too, and even backward in time from you know prior to the rise of Athenian civilization. There's an academic kind of fear, I think, among professional academics of never venturing outside your field of expertise. But the more that you learn and study, the more you realize. I think that like. 
<laughs> actually all of human life is sort of interconnected in some way or another. So there's kind of avenues throughout really to anywhere that you want to get to. Absolutely. And another thing you said reminded me of this passage from Plutarch. And I know that you on your show like to read long quotes and uh, out mm. loud. And uh, I'm, I'm going to read some of this quote. This is from the life of Timoleon and um, on this issue of like having a, a big circle of friends on your shelf. <laughs> For those who can't see, we both have our bookshelves behind us, our, our, our kind of best friends or good friends, at least maybe not best friends. Um, so there's Plutarch. I began the writing of my lives for the sake of others, but I find that I am continuing the work and delighting in it now for my own sake. Also using history as a mirror and endeavoring in a manner to fashion and adorn my life in conformity with the virtues therein depicted. Plutarch, of course, mainly talking about his biography, writing experience. And here we, here we go. For the result is like nothing else than daily living and associating together. When I receive and welcome each subject of my history in turn as my guest, so to speak, mm. and observe carefully how large he was and of what kind, and select from his career what is most important and most beautiful to know. So I love this image of kind of taking in these great men from the past as your kind of house guest and getting to watch how they, you know, pick up the spoon to eat cereal and stuff like that. So that, that this familiarity is is such a, a value of of engaging with the past. Mm, that's so wonderful. Yeah, there are a number of passages throughout history that express a sentiment like that, I think. I mean, that's a perfectly apt one, that one you picked. And it calls to mind also uh, Machiavelli's letter in 1513 to Francesco Vittori. He's in exile and he's kind of pining for home in Florence. But Every evening after he's done with the work of the day, he takes off his work clothes and he enters into his library and he says, I enter the ancient courts of ancient men. And that, you know, again, you, later on you get uh, W.E.B. Du Bois writes about crossing the color line through literature. And he says, I summon Aristotle and Dumas and what soul I will, and they all come with no scorn or condescension. And it just seems like that's a thought that has recurred again and again, even independently to kind of different people among different you know walks of life who haven't necessarily read the other passages we're talking about i've i've really kind of started to think about it as like a secret society that wherever you are when you meet another mind be it in the pages of a book or indeed in person there's this instant recognition this kind of spark you don't even need a secret handshake it's just like oh yeah you too and and that's actually what c.s lewis says is like the first feeling of friendship is when when one man says to another oh i thought i was the only one you know um and and i, I i'm amazed more and more at how vivid that sense is i i used to think like well it's kind of a danger that the people on my bookshelf are almost more real to me than the people in my life but I've been also very lucky in, in my friends that gradually I've started to realize, no, it's actually that that same quality is is recognizable. Like when you're sitting at a table next to somebody at a conference and they say something or you what talking to somebody at, over coffee or you meet somebody at the gym, like there's always that sense of like, oh, yeah, you know, you're in that secret society. If you're on that path, if you are seeking kind of deep answers to big questions, you sort of start to become kind of one of this like secret inner ring. And I think we can both relate on how getting deeper into the works of ancient literature and um, great works of art of the dead in particular has opened mm. up all kinds of doorways to meet the living, interesting living people. And on that, on that note, I wanted to ask you, are there any living people that really shaped your journey that on your way to becoming first a classicist, maybe then a podcaster, content creator that, that you said, ah, I want to be like that. Hmm. Has that been part of your journey? It, it certainly has. I mean, I don't think there are any, I don't think I know a single classicist that didn't have a life-changing teacher somewhere down the line. It's not the kind of field that you go into without a really inspiring individual. Um, you, I think you probably can like make your way into law or into chemistry or whatever just by virtue of the cultural cachet that those subjects have and their prominence in our sense of what it means to be a successful person. Um, 
that used to be true of classics, I think. You know, the classics used to be kind of one of those things like being a lawyer that was just, you know, a, a kind of fancy profession. Now it's this uh, obscure, like, subfield moldering away in these academic uh, chambers, at least according to public perception. So you really need somebody like the in in the hero with a thousand faces, that kind of gate gatekeeper that ushers you into the quest. Or like in video games, it's always the like one guy that's standing at the foot of the village, telling you like you must go and and make this make this journey. Um, so I had a teacher in in high school, Holly Haycock, who is alive, and you know there are many ways in which we're very different people but she could just be lit on fire so easily she was so intellectually combustible um and and that i think just there's something about that that i admired so profoundly and was so contagious um she was my latin teacher she she ended up teaching me greek as well because i got so you know into it and kind of wanted more um so that's somebody that i has definitely kind of shaped me um, I will say, in, in some sense, this is a cliche, but uh, also I think we've lost touch with a lot of our best cliches. Um, my father is somebody that counts, that falls into this uh, position. And because we're so hyper-skeptical of, well, family ties generally, but also the, the notions of manly honor and uh, heritage and all of that stuff, um, it's, it's, it's almost like embarrassing to say like boys want to be like their dads but they do and and that's probably there's probably something natural to that which means that as a father you have this then enormous responsibility to be somebody that it's worth wanting to be like because your boy's going to want to be like you anyway and so i was very very fortunate that i had a father who is um worth emulating in every respect certainly in the intellectual domain that we've been talking about he is the reason i grew up in that house filled with books is because they were his you know and and he and my mother were both literary types but really i think more importantly both my parents and my father especially modeled by example a a, a way of being an intellectual and living the life of the mind that was not inherently divorced from all the things that most people care about and think about on the day to day. In fact, just the opposite. You know, now I think we have this kind of backwards idea that the further away you get from ordinary pursuits and ordinary concerns, the closer you get to some sort of platonic contemplation of the good and beautiful in itself. And your ideas are just so rarefied that nobody back in you know, on the farm would understand them and they probably seem weird and whatever. Don't get me wrong. I am a weird, distractible, ink-stained wretch, no question about it. But from my father, I learned that in many ways it's it's equally true that the most mundane and daily and quotidian things are the ones that contain the deepest profundities. And so intellectual life for him and for me has always been less about getting away from your body and your need to eat and your like you know, and physical fitness and all that stuff and more about uncovering these sort of hidden uh, profundities and richnesses that are already baked into the world as as God created it. You know, as a as a dad myself, I definitely feel that pressure and I, that that I didn't feel before to to be a good example. Uh, there's a lot of fathers in the audience. You've had some really interesting conversations about art and what is the status of art art what is the purpose of art art for art's sake on a couple of shows you've done lately and this is something that you talk a lot about in your book how to save the west and so what what i think of myself as doing and what we're surrounded by today in is content and hmm. the the discussion of what is art often seems like a very lofty idea that's for people that go to museums. But in fact, we're all consuming it all the time, especially now through through the media that we're making. And, you know, I think that there are a lot of people in my audience that are up for challenging themselves when they find the leisure to read a difficult book of literature, philosophy, appreciate a painting or challenge themselves with some difficult music and 
in a way, I think of myself as a, you know, an artist in the, in the kind of very, very small sense. There's some kind of continuum that the YouTuber or the Substack writer is on with the other great content creators like Homer and Plato. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean to, it's kind of a funny comparison, but so let's talk about why we consume art, let's say, or what maybe the better way to frame it is, what is art for? And, and you've had a really interesting discussion about this movement that we probably see in the is it Metro Goldwyn Mayer, Ars Gratia Artis with the lion roaring is on the ribbon there, if I remember correctly, art for art's sake, this idea that mm-hmm. from the 19th century that art should be done for art's sake. Tell us a little bit about this debate and you know maybe why it's relevant for us now. Yeah, so I'm really interested in things that just seem to most people like quote-unquote common sense. And, and I guess I'm interested in it because I feel like a lot of the things that pass for common sense or conventional wisdom or received opinion in our current era are actually very unusual and rarefied beliefs. Now, that doesn't mean that they're wrong, necessarily. It just means that what we tend to take for granted would seem very strange to, I would say, the vast majority of people throughout time, at least in the West. And art for art's sake is a great example of one of those ideas that, you know, people probably don't think about these questions all that often, as you say, like directly, necessarily, they tend to be the domain of philosophers and academics, but everybody actually has a working model of this kind of question of what's the point of, as you put it rightly, content or culture? Why am I going to a museum? You know, if if I get an hour free, I'm going to make a choice. I'm going to go to a museum or I'm going to watch Netflix or I'm going to play football or I'm going to do whatever. And whether I examine it or not, the implicit in those choices are going to be certain ideas about what how it's worthwhile to spend my time, what's good for me, what's going to make me happy and all that stuff. Um, and, you know, you are somebody who reads very deeply in kind of past lives and in, as, as you rightly note, like biography and emulation. And so you know that this is the way that we kind of tend to treat this stuff isn't the way that it's been thought about for most of history. Um, this idea of art for art's sake, which is the idea that art is basically a, a pure pleasure or a pure aesthetic delight um and 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 every other way of judging it is wrong or backward or even like maybe a little bit naive and sort of contemptible like oh it's only the bourgeois like middle class strivers who don't understand real refinement they're the only ones who ask questions like is this a moral work of art or will this piece of art be good for me and and that sort of thing in in the 19th century as you indicate a culture of sort of bohemian insouciance uh, emerged that really kind of reacted against all of those questions and saw the the moral dimension of art as a kind of imposition by small-minded middle-class philistines essentially and There are all sorts of reasons why it made sense that they did that at that time. I mean, the Victorian era in England was kind of a moment of highly um, restrictive social mores, for better or for worse. And that always, you know, all human things come along with excess. So that probably also did come along with a certain degree of small mindedness uh, and hypocrisy and all of these things that artists naturally chafe against. And at the same time, you know, you had a sort of utilitarian mindset that was emerging out of certain technological and scientific developments, the Industrial Revolution, the success of Newton's laws, all of this kind of cultural and sociological force conspiring to create a general impression that the world is like a machine and calculations of utility and virtue were the only things that mattered. And so in reaction against that, you get this artistic rebellion in the 19th century that says, no, like, art is not useful. Art is not instructive. Art does not serve your calculus or your machine. 
art is actually a uh, sui generis. It's it's a beautiful thing unto itself. It's beautiful for the sake of beauty. It's pointless. It's beautifully pointless. All of these kind of ways of talking. Oscar Wilde is somebody that I talked about a lot on the show who who talks this way. But you can find Edgar Allan Poe talking about this. You can read any number of kind of uh, French theorists in the nineteenth century who who feel this way. Um, and and that has now been so successful as a campaign that it can show up on the Metro Golden Wind Mayor logo that like a country as sort of <laughs> bourgeois and moralistic in its sensibilities as America can nevertheless manufacture and mass produce works of art that present themselves as morally irrelevant right that that kind of at the opening, the title credits, before you even start rolling, you have this sign emblazoned in front of the audience that says, this is just entertainment, <laughs> right? This is not uh, to be taken as a kind of moral... Even if the movie Amazing. doesn't actually work that way, right? It's kind of wild to think that in America, we just have this like ingrained subcutaneous reflex uh, that says art is, art is for art's sake. And... What I have been arguing in my book, as you indicate, and on the show, and just kind of trying to puzzle out and work through is that this this idea, um, it, it's not that art doesn't have kind of pointlessly beautiful elements, and it's not that art isn't sort of different from moral treatises and different from... It's just that art for art's sake as a slogan is like totally inadequate for understanding art, and you can't even really talk about art in that way, um, which is why... Today, nobody does. People say that they think art is just, you know, should be free and should be its own thing. But then they get into these fights about, like, representation, which is a moral question about who should be depicted on screen and how. Or they argue over, like, you know, Netflix put up a sexually suggestive poster and this this seems wrong to them. And so, you know, we've got this kind of outdated comparison between like, oh, conservatives think about morality and art. These these middle class sort of Philistines think about morality and art. And then the left and the liberals, well, they're just let a thousand flowers bloom. Um, but if if ever that was true, it's definitely not true now. Like art for art's sake has just totally crumbled out from underneath us. And we're all right, left, whatever. We're all in a fight over what are the moral contours of our art going to be. And I just find that really interesting because guess who has like a lot to say about that? Plato, Plutarch, yes. like all of these ancient thinkers that recognized Cicero, that recognized and understood that there is a moral dimension to art and can help us maybe think through like how we might be sensible about that and responsible about it without getting into Twitter flame wars over like what percentage of black people are in the new Lord of the Rings or whatever nonsense. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny, you know, it sort of makes me think, you know, a lot of people love to post how ridiculous modern art is on Twitter. And, mm. you know, it's easy to find great examples of, of modern performance art being ridiculous. And, it, you know, when I've gone and, let's say, engaged with that kind of thing, you often think, well, so there'll be, you know, say somebody wrapped in saran wrap, you know, emerging mm. out of the, you know, some kind of weird container and covered in flour and naked. It's just bizarre stuff. But if <laughs> I think this might be just a dream you had one time. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I, I could be confusing that. With, <laughs> yeah, I, I had a lot of Parmesan cheese last night, had a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. So so um, but when you are presented with some some kind of bizarre art like that often there's like a pamphlet that you get handed or there's some kind of poster on the wall or there's an ex expectation that later somebody's going to come along and tell you what it meant and in hmm. the kind of uh rube goldberg machine of of literary th artistic criticism theory often put in a very uh you know hard to understand way the payoff is kind of like oh this is a critique of power that 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 there is something political or even I would say moral, there actually is a moral payoff. And as long as you tell mm. people that it's moral, it's art. You can you can push all mm. kinds of boundaries. And I wonder if that's if that's true, it's because 
that there's a kind of vacuousness left open by this idea of art for art's sake that people don't actually believe and it kind of gives you a tabula rasa for maybe we'd say politicized Marxist art. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's a fascinating. I mean, because I associate a lot of early modern art, like Pollock, Rothko, like that stuff. I associate a lot of, I guess, early abstraction, let's say, with this, with a total unmooring of art from any sort of requirement for meaning or I mean it seemed like that was part of the effort part of the theory of the thing was that by fleeing from form visual physical form artists were also going to flee from moral constraints because you know the structure in the physical world is kind of analogous to structure in the moral world and there was I think part of you know a, a close association between art for art's sake and this this like avant-garde of, uh, you know, iconoclasm in, in modern art. But you're absolutely right that, like, nature abhors a vacuum, power abhors a vacuum, and into this totally unsustainable, like, amoral form of art, there emerged a new and very, in, in many cases, sort of simplistic and, and extreme morality, which is all about, you know, decolonization and power and, like, gone are the days when you would say, oh, well, art has no message. Like now art almost has to have a message in order to gain traction among our sort of literary elite. And I think this is mirrored on the other side, if I may kind of uh, critique my side or our side for a bit. You know, there's this account on Twitter. I think it's called like Culture Critic or something. Huge, huge account. And will just tweet like pictures of gorgeous architecture or amazing sculpture and say things like we used to be able to build these or look at what that this area looks like now or or whatever and part of me like really finds a lot of those posts annoying like there is a artistic iconoclast in me that says like do you want to have maybe just a little bit of curiosity about why artistic styles developed away from this rather than just kind of wringing your hands about some sort of doomsday narrative? But on the other hand, there's no question that there's like an inherent kind of response that that generates where you see these gorgeous works of art. And it's a valid observation that things got uglier, things got more depressing, and that certain regimes, certain political attitudes, uh, Soviet communism, for example, just generated soul-destroying and anti-human aesthetics. And so, you know, I think people are going a little bit crazy on either side of this, like the the conservative culture critics and the, you know, Marxist uh, post-modernists or whatever, because they kind of can't admit to themselves that this is a complex interaction between aesthetics and morals, um, which is like the whole ancient tradition of talking about this is just based on the subtleties of how you navigate these various claims and negotiate the different things that art's supposed to do. Um, and as Americans and as moderns, like we can't deal with kind of trade-offs and negotiations. We have to have this like absolute theory of something. And so it's either art is like totally a moral tract and that's what it's there to do, or it's got nothing to do with morality at all. And like neither of those things make any sense and ends up with really sort of schizophrenic and um, unself-aware actions and, and attitudes like creating a splodge of paint on a wall that is supposed to represent man's inhumanity to man or, you know, being unable to appreciate anything that happened in art or culture after like 1950. I mean, none of these things really works. What you want is a framework for thinking about art that is both rigid and clear enough to allow you to refine your own taste, right? You should have to work up to good art and you should have to meet art at its level. It should draw you up rather than the other way around. So you need that framework. But the framework also has to be loose enough to recognize innovation, uh, kind of novelty, to understand that certain eras produce certain sensibilities that have to be reflected in art and might therefore not generate as much kind of beautiful formal art, all of that sort of thing. And, you know, 
Aristotle is really good on this in his poetics. If you look carefully at how he formulates his definitions, he's always trying to be just specific enough so that he gets at the heart of the thing without being so specific that he's going to miss something that kind of doesn't fit his framework. Um, there's a great poem, I think it's Yeats, um, who, who says you know, about the critics, what would they say? What would they say if their Catullus came their way? In other words, here's this great poet now that everybody recognizes as part of the canon, but he writes smut and he's totally irreverent and subversive. And he writes lyric instead of epic and all of these things that nowadays, if somebody did those same things transposed into the modern context, the same critics that adore Catullus would be like, well, I don't know. Um, So all of this simply to say, like, there is kind of a negotiation that has to go on here. And the people who kind of got this right, I think, were the people of the Ciceronian school who said of rhetoric that it has to move, delight, and instruct mm. all at once. Mm-hmm. And in fact, do each of those things by doing the others, right? It moves you, um, or rather it instructs you by moving you. Like part of the education it's giving you is the is an emotional education. And because it's an emotional education, it's also a moral education because our, our emotions are the stuff that we manipulate and, and deal with when we ask questions about ethics. Um, so that kind of thing seems like it really due for a revival now um, because it actually gets you out of some of these weird modern uh, debates we're having and into something maybe a little bit more sustainable and eternal. Yeah, and and uh, so it's not like when we think about art being moral, it's not like, you know, a fable. And the lesson is, and, hmm. you know, we're not talking about moralistic art um, or something simplistic that you might find uh, in the, the pamphlet at a museum. But so you said that our that our emotions are a kind of key to morality. And it makes me think of a passage that I know that you've thought about a lot in this context in the Iliad in book nine, where mm-hmm. um, there's a, a scene where Achilles is retreated from the army and He's had a quarrel with Agamemnon and he's been dishonored and he's decided to leave the Greek army and the Greeks are getting slaughtered by the Trojans because their best their best fighter is away. And uh, they send a kind of uh, negotiating party to Achilles to try to get him to come back to the war. And they find him, they find him pleasing his mind with his uh, which is this shrill lyre or is forming. He's basically playing the harp and he's using it to delight his soul. And what, what is he doing to delight his soul? He's singing the deeds or the glories of great men of the past. Uh, what do you think of this passage, if I summarized it well, in the context of this discussion of what, what art is and what's it for? Absolutely. I do think you summarized it well. It's the formingi legeye with his sort of subtle or, or smooth-toned lyre. Better than right? shrill, probably, to say that. Yeah. <laughs> well, shrill comes up a lot in translations. <laughs> I, my, my PhD was in ancient Greek music, so I've just spent a long time thinking about like all these different words for sound. Like, what's a psophos exactly? Yeah. Um, wow. I mean, but the, but the gist of it is he's got this instrument. It's a forminx, and it's actually his prize achievement from a particular battle. It was what he selected first among the different war prizes that he could get. And so here you have Homer presenting us with something just remarkably astute and original and kind of distinctive. And that is the the, the warrior poet, right? The, the scholar uh, who fights or the, the fighter who sings. And I think off the bat, that's clearly something that people that listen to this podcast that you and I both would really like aspire to talk about emulation. You know, here's an image that I think just kind of tugs at the heart and makes you think I want to be like that. Um, And maybe that's the way into talking to answering your question, which is men especially, but people in general respond to honest and true portrayals of what is good 
um, with a kind of mirror response. In other words, we are there's an inherent attractiveness to it. We are drawn that that way. Um, and as you know, one of the major ways of kind of constructing a theory of emotion in the ancient world is to begin by building it up out of little soul tugs, little motions, directions in which your soul is pulled. And one classic version of this is when your soul is pulled towards something, that's desire. And when your soul is, is pushed away from something, that's aversion. And out of desire and aversion, we can derive pleasure and pain because pleasure consists perhaps in desire satisfied. Pain consists in aversion thwarted, right? The thing that you don't want does happen to you. Um, and, you know, you can get in all sorts of picky arguments over whether this is exactly right or whether you want to deal with it quite slightly differently. But basically, I think it's a pretty sound way of kind of, it's like an atomized theory of the human soul. It's like, what are the atoms of of the, the human experience? Well, they're not actually like adenosine triphosphate or like serotonin the way that our modern materialists think they are you know tugs pulls and, and pleasures and pains and desires and out of those kind of what the greeks would call stoicheia these these like building blocks um you can then construct a theory or an outline of certain emotions so if you might say like courage uh, or Maybe the, you know, uh, motivation, let's say, is a mm -hmm. pull toward victory, glory, danger. You know, you again, you would get into arguments over how this works. But this is a really useful, I think, like uh, heuristic for kind of thinking about what we are feeling and experiencing. Um, and, and once you know that, you can start to see how somebody like Plato uh, would have built up what came in modernity to be called the ethos theory of music but also of, of poetry and i think of art more generally ethos meaning character from which we get our word ethics um that really everything that we see and respond to the reason that we care about art at all in some deep sense is because it stimulates in us a kind of um sympathetic response like the the feelings that you have kind of correspond to your sense of empathy with the characters or, or with what's going on. Um, and art can do that in a way that is frank and honest, in a way that is surprising, like I think Homer's scene with, with Achilles is. Um, it can also do that in a way that is manipulative and, and disingenuous. And, and this was one of Plato's, Socrates's famous complaints about Homer specifically, but poets in general, that they are capable also of attaching pleasure and delight to false or ugly things and then training us to kind of respond that way. Um, but since habituation and kind of regular conditioning is such an important part of how we develop ourselves and develop our character, um, art has a major influence on us in that way, right? Once you think of emotions as consisting of tugs of pleasure and pain and aversion and, and desire, um, then you start to realize that virtues might just be kind of shaping your soul to be tugged toward the good and away from what is evil. Um, and this will gradually become like a, a classic Platonic Aristotelian definition of education. Um, so, now you kind of start to see that like right at the heart of what art does is a form of like moral soul shaping mm. that will change how you respond to things that will condition you to respond to certain things in certain ways. And those responses are necessarily going to be moral. But none of that has to do with some scene in which, let's say, like Achilles, like breaks the fourth wall and looks out to the camera and says, I really think that it's bad to steal somebody's girl and, like, uh, breaking oaths is wrong. You know, characters in the Iliad do discuss moral questions, don't get me wrong, um, but that's not how the poem or any work of art, any great work of art, functions morally. It functions by getting under your skin and even in this kind of pre-rational way, showing you a way to be or a thing that could happen or a, a series of events um, that, that you naturally and automatically are going to have a response to. Like, it's part of your birthright as a human being to be shaped by this stuff. Um, and, and that raises all sorts of great questions that you can ask about like what the artist's moral responsibility is without 
uh, ending you up in this place where you have to be like, well, he showed a bad word or he did sex on screen or like there was a gory scene and that's bad and wrong. Like that's just not how this stuff works at all. Like it's much less about what is being shown because you can show anything in art if it's true. Um, it's much more about what kind of response are you being invited or nudged toward in this work of art? Um, and is that something that you like or about yourself or dislike? Do you like the you that responds in the way this art wants to respond? Uh, or do you think that that's kind of a gross version of, of yourself? And, and that's a question that I think we should all basically always be asking. Yeah. And I, you know, I think of, of Achilles there playing this harp, he's suffering, he's, he's, he's upset and he's singing, I imagine songs of men like himself who have suffered and been upset. And it, it's, it's pleasing to him to see pain depicted and um, mm. and Aristotle talks about this in the poetics, right? You know that part of the pleasure of tragedy is is seeing people experiencing that suffering that makes us experience pity and fear, which is um, which is just part of the pleasure of art. So I I think of biography as a kind of spiritual descendant of epic that. You know, mm. epic is kind of these songs of great men, great deeds of the past. And in the fourth century in particular, BC, play figures I'm talking about like Xenophon and Isocrates, even Aristotle and his school, they they invent this new way of writing stories about, about great figures, encapsulating their lives in 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 texts and prose. And but you know, it sounds and I'm I think of biography as this genre that's all about emulation, but it sounds like you would you might say that you can feel that feeling of emulation toward a fictional character too, in a way. What do you think about that? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I, I love the idea of biography as a descendant of epic. I mean, just historically, genealogically, I think basically all Greek literature is kind of a descendant of Homer, but particularly, yeah, the Clea Andron that uh, Achilles resorts to. I mean, isn't that kind of what Plutarch is up to? I mean, you can also find negative examples, obviously, in, in Plutarch, but the sense, right, of there have been people like me in situations like mine. I'm not alone, but also those people might be something to aspire to, right? Might have responded in a way that makes me actually feel a little bit rebuked. Like there can be, I think, rebuke in in great literature of both the fictional and the non-fictional kind. Um, and it's important, I think, here to kind of note that though the dividing line between those two things was nowhere near as clear in antiquity as it is for us now. We tend, I think, as a consequence of the scientific revolution to ask, like, is this text literally true? Meaning, could it be physically measured? Like, if we were there with a GoPro camera, could we get a material verification that this was happening in the way it's being described? But so often, even in nonfiction in the ancient world, even in historical accounts, the author is not actually speaking in those terms and doesn't intend to be understood in those terms. I mean, yes, of course, like a Thucydides is wants you to take his calculation of the number of ships in this or that battle at like face value, you know, and he really thinks that that's the correct measurement. But also a Herodotus wants you to know about the color of things, wants you to feel the way it felt. And like, um, so all of this is... Uh, by way of saying, you know, even in a modern biography with modern standards of kind of repertorial ethics and journalism and sourcing, you're still building a curated portrait of somebody mm -hmm. and you want it to be true to life. You want it to be to represent him accurately. But in order to do so, you have to get across not just sort of material details in the same way that a painting that perfectly reproduces every corner of somebody's face isn't yet a good portrait until you can look in the eyes and say yeah that spirit that's really that is the man you know there he is ecce homo and i think you know the version of this in biography is like plutarch's picking details he's curating he's even giving you sometimes avowedly 
anecdotal or kind of apocryphal uh, stories about him, urban legends that are that, that are being told about him, as a way of illustrating the impression he made on people and as a way of kind of inviting you into uh, that guest-friend relationship that he talks about. Um, and so absolutely, I think, like, you're kind of always in that relationship with great characters. I mean, who hasn't read, like, David Copperfield and thought man, you know, this guy is so real to me. And, you know, I, I learned from his mistakes. I learned from his successes. Um, it's just this, you know, it, it, great literature of, of both the fictional and the non-fictional kind it has much the same effect of, like, knowing somebody personally, right? These people become that real to you. And you are in the same position that you are with your friend, right? Except that you can't influence them, right? You can't give advice. But in the same way that I might see you do something, you know, on your show and think, huh, that's just, I wish I'd thought of that. That's really smart. And then I would go away and be like, yeah, I'm going to sort of try my version of that and maybe make it different. I, I, I just think this is like a very natural and sort of inescapable way that we engage with fiction and nonfiction and that has been kind of scrubbed away because we're, we're sheepish about making moral claims, right? We're very comfortable making analyses of how this or that sentence got in here. We're less comfortable looking head on at the claim it makes on us and asking whether we are willing to endorse or reject that claim. Yeah, yeah, well put. And I think we apply a moral filter to biography and hmm. uh, in, in a similar way that we apply it to fi fiction in, in different ways. But I, I was thinking of this quote from Larry Ellison, the founder of Oracle, who was a personal friend of Steve Jobs. And he he enjoyed reading a biography about Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson. But he had this one criticism that he said Isaacson made Jobs seem dispensable, by which I think he meant repeatable. Like, like there, mm -hmm. there could have been a Steve Jobs without Steve Jobs. And somehow... Isaacson didn't capture the singularity of the man, and I think, mm. I think that uh, he he meant it that that's a moral criticism in a way. It's about who Steve Jobs was and his how he 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 really is somebody that you should emulate, and that's important to kind of get across mm. for a guy like Ellison who who admired him and you know emulated him in certain ways. So, um, but I think that you know we can take that kind of emulative approach to the Iliad or, or any number of other works of fiction, like you were saying. And we often think of these things as maybe it's our kind of modern perception of literature is kind of art for art's sake. It's this thing that you should do in your leisure time that isn't necessarily practical. But, but part of what is moral about biography is, is those examples give you energy they give you tools mm. achilles was not just entertaining himself he was looking for tools i think to to deal with his grief i think a lot of people read biography like larry ellison reads a lot of biographies of course you know for for insight for energy and we might say we think we talk more in terms in the world of biography in terms of practical insights or in terms of lessons but often those lessons are basically moral. It's like about mustering up the courage to deal with the difficult situations about iterating on something enough. It's about persistence, but, but you have to see it depicted for it, for the lesson to stick. It, it's not just about mm -hmm. you go be courageous. You need to, to have that example, that representation at length for the, for the lesson to work. And it, I think it obviously works in biography, the best selling nonfiction genre, but it seems like it could also work with something like the epics of Homer. I mean, this is at what what the the scene of um, Achilles playing his lyre and, and entertaining himself with the deeds of men. I think this is a lot of how the ancient Greeks used these fictional genres to give them energy and to give them lessons and insights in a very practical mm. way, and not just in a kind of entertainment art for art's sake way. It's really interesting, you know, I, when I knew we were going to do this conversation and I know you're interested in Amulatio and, and role models, I was thinking also not just about living role models, but, you know, dead people are people that I've met through literature. And this is the 50th anniversary of the publication of the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, wow. the great Soviet dissident. 
And I think if anybody kind of, for me, just instantly evokes that longing, both the sense of inadequacy and the longing to kind of become a better person, it's Solzhenitsyn. I mean, we have this cockamamie modern idea that like, if you see somebody that is perfect in some way, that's just so beautiful or so strong or so good, that's an insult, right? Ideals are insults. And so there's an unrealistic beauty standard and Superman is enforcing unrealistic body expectations for men. And it's like, damn right, it's enforcing unrealistic body expectations for men. You look, like the whole point is you look at Superman, you think, I want to be like that. And then you go to the gym and you don't look like that, but it's like you're always sort of aspiring toward it and it calls you up. You know, that's sort of the whole point. Like you you should feel bad. Like you should feel bad about the way, about your inadequacies. You shouldn't beat yourself up about them every day but you should be honest and acknowledge them and then do something about them you know i mean it is this like there's kind of a meme online that like girls look at barbie and think i'll never be that way and guys look at superman and think like i'm gonna do 100 push-ups right now you know um and i don't know how true that is as like a, a gendered observation maybe it is um but it's certainly a, an expression of this thing that we're talking about you know so okay so you read this three volumes long and um, what's what's amazing about it, you know, it's it's this harrowing account of the camps and this very humbly presented but very real description of amazing courage that Solzhenitsyn himself showed and many people in the camps showed against these terrible acts of violence and persecution on the part of Stalin and the Soviet state. Um, and, and Solzhenitsyn's widow, Natalia, has written recently a fascinating thing, especially given the topic of our conversation. She she says, you know, this is a prison memoir. Yes, it's a work of history. It's a it's a social critique and all of that. But what it really is is an epic poem. Mm. And mm. I, I, when I read that, I thought that's kind of wild. You know, like because epic poems, as we've been discussing, are memorials and are repositories of consolation and emulation and all of this stuff. And when you look at the work of somebody like Solzhenitsyn that way and, and like think of it as an object that is there to sort of challenge you um, with the with Solzhenitsyn's remarkable honesty, composure, faith, all of this. Um, it, it kind of opens up the whole work. Um, and the best part about it is that for all that he himself lived this extraordinary life and achieved so much, um, he actually left behind a very simple and, and low bar for becoming more like him, um, which is in a speech he gave where people ask, like, you know, how do I uh, resist an oppressive regime? And he says, if it's too hard to tell the truth, simply begin with a personal non-participation in lies. Mm. And I think about that all the time because like it, it is very hard just in general to tell the truth. And especially now when the political climate is so fissile and you feel like anything you say could get you leapt upon and attacked. It's like, just don't lie um, and see where that gets you. That's like Solzhenitsyn sort of, and, and you can tell that this is a, a genuine and sincere kind of first principle that is the kind of thing that could lead you on to unremarkable, or rather a remarkable and, and un, unsurpassable greatness. Um, so yeah, I, I've just, I, I've been thinking about that a lot because it, it speaks to, you know, is that, is that a work of fiction, nonfiction? Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's certainly true. Everything in it is true, but it's also very literary and poetic. Um, and, and I loved the Natalia Solzhenitsyn observation that what it really is, is an, is an epic poem and epic poems are there, um, to instruct. This has been great, Spencer. To close, um, one, one last question. What would you say to a busy dad building a company who mainly wants inspiration or energy from his content consumption? Uh, are there any works of art or literature that you'd recommend him consuming? And, and if so, what would be the mindset that, that he should approach it with? That's a great question. Um, there are a lot of uh, like kind of short, sharp shocks you can get from classic literature. They are not, it's not all kind of massive tomes that you have to paw your way through. Um, it is contagious. So you might start with the great Gatsby and find yourself reading war and peace like that. That definitely has been known to happen, but 
I would say like if you've got whatever an hour a day or you've got something to do, um, the first thing I would say is unless you're waking up at like four in the morning, you can always wake up an hour earlier. Um, and and if you think you can't, you probably can. And that space, I'm I'm an early morning supremacist. That space is where you put your reading and your reflection. You can read for half an hour and write and reflect for another half an hour or do whatever, however you want. Um, I would certainly begin with uh, with Plato's first tetralogy. I think there's just like an enormous kind of what's great about that that series that's is the Euthyphro, the Phaedo, the Crito, and the Apology. It's the death of Socrates and and his trial and all of that, and it it will get you out of the mindset that philosophy is sort of a um, a dry academic. Activity. Um, Plato was known in antiquity, uh, you know, uh, among other things, for his prose style. He was an excellent writer, um, and I think like careful scrutiny of those texts, which are short and can be read quickly, um, but also can stick with you for your whole life. It's a great place to get started. That's a great, great recommendation, and I, I am a big morning supremacist myself. Early morning supremacist. Excellent. Great. It's the best time to read for sure. And well. Thank you so much, Spencer. Uh, people can find you on the Young Heretics podcast. Is, is there a website they should go to that? Uh, I apps. would say just head probably uh, to my Twitter. There you uh, go. If, if you're on, even whether you're on it or not, it's just Spencer Clavin. There you go. And check out his, his great new book, How to Save the West. Thanks for your time, Spencer. We'll talk soon. It's been a pleasure, Alex. Thanks, bro. All right.